Well, now, would you look at this? It's another bright, sparkly, spangly, festive, timelessly <laughs> edition of yeah. Books of the Year. Well, I mean, as we speak, it's one o'clock on Tuesday, the 11th of December. But let's not strip away the magic, because I'm sure people people are probably listening to this just before Christmas. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, or they could yeah. be listening. They might just dis- discover us in March 2019. That's true. In which case, please tell us everything's better now. Is it? Please. You sound as though you don't expect is, things to be any better. <laughs> is it some apocalyptic... Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic wasteland. But things can only get better. Yeah, well, they can't get much worse. Well, they actually can get oh, no, a whole that, lot that's worse. that's true. When you think about it. They yeah, could, yeah. In fact, by yeah. the time people have heard this, they might have already got a whole lot worse. A whole worse. lot worse. Stockpiling medicine, and we're not even at war. And they might be fighting in the streets and all yep, that kind of stuff. Yeah, And uh, fact, Roger Daltrey thinks, our guest today, thinks that The Who is music to fight to. Yes, no. Uh, I Yeah, uh, reading his book, there is so... Well, we'll get into this in the interview itself, but there's so much uh, primal, fighty stuff within their music that I hadn't thought of before. I always... I'm quite a fighter. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm more of a lover. Is that, is that right? <laughs> uh, so Roger Daltrey is on the way. Uh, Josie Moynihan... I enjoyed listening to you two and John Simpson talking about Moscow, comma, midnight. I was surprised and delighted by John's mischievous indiscreetness. Mm. Keep up the good work. Take care. And actually, Phil Williams at Five Live, our yes. old colleague, said he laughed out loud. He sort of spurted his coffee. Yeah. I think when we mentioned the Mark Mardell moment. Uh, yes. I, uh, having listened to that back, I wonder whether John was about was realized how indiscreet he was going to be until the point where he was really indiscreet it just felt like that with me um rachel regular emailer to the show says to be absolutely honest i was expecting a very dry interview with john oh, thanks simpson a lot. however yeah it was anything but john is refreshingly direct in expressing his views and opinions it was rather touching when he talked about being sidelined by the bbc i'm glad he had a reprieve i really enjoyed the pod actually i think it's now one of my top favorites uh with interesting talk about the book and jolly good stories too looking forward to the q and a um, this is from Griffin Hansen. Actually, shall I carry on reading Griffin Hansen? I don't think we should, because uh, he's literally about to come in. So, um, do, we, do, do we stand when Roger yes, comes I, in? Yes, I'm assuming that's the case. No, we'll oh, okay. Here we go. So it's right. Simon and Matt. And here's your oh, Roger, nice to see you again. How are you? Hey, Roger. This is Matt. Hi. I'd love a cup of, uh, I'd love a cappuccino, please. Yep. That's not for you, mate. All right. It's all right, Rog. Thank you very much. Yes, Good. it's okay. And uh, pretty non-stop with your book. Well, uh, it's, I'm a bit of a crossroads. You know, I'm 75 next year. And that's uh, looking pretty good, I have to say. Not bad for seventy-five. No. I'm fit, but it's still still a crossroads in the head. You know, you you can you feel the end racing up because Christmas seems to be every other weekend these days. <laughs> <laughs> it comes around so quick. <laughs> I can't believe you're 75 because you're looking about 54. Yeah, if you, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> and do you, do you feel kind of intimations of mortality? You know, do you think? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the last the last four years of my life have been pretty traumatic. Mm. When I got that dose of meningitis, that was a wake up call. Because I I, I I I did my biography rather different than most people do theirs. I didn't have a book deal. I didn't want one because I kind of didn't know whether I had a good biography in me 
And if I had taken the money on a book deal, I would have had to come up with something. And, and I, all I wanted was a, was a good book. So I employed someone to work with me to kind of keep a kind of editorial eye on it. And um been working on it for three years and I got this dose of meningitis, which which I really did think was going to take me. Um, and I, when I came out of it, I kind of thought, well, I'd better get this book finished because there's not much left. <laughs> so uh, I suppose maybe you need that kind of shock to the system to make you think, okay, well, if I'm not going to get this down, I don't want to rely on someone else looking at it. Well, that. that was it. That was really it. I, I just wanted to, because I wanted to try and, in, my, in this book, I, you know, I, I found so many of the rock and roll biographies, like when they start talking about music for instance for me was like it's like listening to a portrait trait gallery it's boring for me you know so i wanted to try and give the reader an idea of what it felt like to do you know what 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 i've done through my life and what you know what were the emotional traumas of the time you know how did you deal with situations personally it's just yeah. my view of it and you know and and i'm sure if Pete wrote a, a book from his personal point of view of how it was, it would be completely different. And, and uh, I mean, we'll discuss the different bits and pieces and the stories and the, and the professional side and the, and the personal side as well, but did you enjoy actually trying to put it all down in one book, you know, all of your story, the rock and roll and the relationships and how you all met and the, the stuff that went well, the stuff that went badly, was that and did you enjoy that whole process? Well, you know the way I the way I did it. I just employed a, a, a journalist friend of mine to do loads of interviews, um, and and I answered all the questions very honestly. And then we just because the only way you can do a good biography is to be very honest about yourself and about your life, and uh, that's how I did it. And like I say, he had he kept the editorial eye on it to keep it in a shape that would make a book form, yeah. and. Um, and then I wrote, you know, because when you speak, it's not written language. It's, spoken language is very different from written language. So I kind of had to write over it, which was kind of a weird, that was a weird experience. Mm. And then doing the, uh, found the most difficult thing of all was doing the audio book. That was really weird. That was painful. Why? Well, it's like living, that really was like living like my life again. And, and because there's a lot of trauma in there, I mean, I lost a lot of friends, and, and those moments, especially when you're doing the audio book, you just can't do a flat read, uh, make make a nonsense of it. So you have to kind of live it again to put yourself back in the brain space you were at the time when those things were happening, and some of those things were very painful. Did you did you check any of it with either with? Pete Townsend or with no, your no, wife? No, no, it's my bloody book. <laughs> check any of it with Heather? No. Huh? Did you check any of it with your wife? Oh, she's read. Yeah, of course I gave it. Of course I, I, I let her read it because I, you know, our relationship, you know, to air your your, your personal life in, in public is not easy. And uh, she had to be okay with how it was, but. You know, like she said, it's how it's been. Yeah. Can I just start? I mean, there there are some there are so many things to talk to you about. You choose to start. I mean, you mentioned your your health, but you start with uh, an incident in two thousand and seven, um, uh, 
uh, a gig where it all it goes wrong for you. It personally. all goes pear shaped. It all goes pear shaped, <laughs> and it ends up with somebody in the hospital saying, "When was the last time you broke your back, Mister Dalton?" No, no, no. no when, so when did you? Break when did you your break back? your back, Mister Dalton? Uh, yeah, I mean, and like out of the blue, there's, there's this doctor saying, "When did you break your back?" And I, I said, "Well, I haven't." And then he said, "Well." I'm sorry, but I beg to differ. <laughs> and he showed me the X-ray, and there it was—one broken back, and this one not very careful owner. But so then I had to think, you know, back when, when, when could I have done it? And then I, you know, I started to think it could have been then, it could have been then, it could have been at least four times that I'd, I'd had really serious, quite serious accidents. Yeah. And this whole body's been beaten about a bit, I'll tell you. Yeah. And it's one of the many moments in the book where you think your life could have gone in a very different direction if things had just turned out slightly differently for you. My life could have gone very, very differently, yeah, def definitely. I mean, um, the age of 19, I, you know, I, I got married because I, I got a girl pregnant, and that's what you did in those days. And I tried to make that marriage work, and I was, I was living in one room of a council flat in Wandsworth with with the mother-in-law in in, in, a, in this council flat, and it, it was hard. And I tried, and I tried, and I stuck it for about uh, until my son arrived, and and I had about three months of that. But I couldn't do it, and I kind of used to look out of the window, six stories up in this block of flats, and the group van would be in the street. And the name of the group in those days was the Detours, and, and on the, so on the side of the van was painted the Detours, with an arrow at the end of it. So the arrow was kind of pointing towards the front, so the van was going in the direction yeah. of the arrow. And I swear that that van was calling me. <laughs> you know that if I could make the dream work, I could do better for everybody. Uh, and I had to take the chance, and I, I walked out on my, on my family. I still supported them and I went on supporting them and as we did well, I went back and supported them even more, you know, and we became very close because my first wife married again, had two, had another two kids and uh, became very close with myself and my new wife and my two kids at the time. So it all worked out in the end but it was... That crunch moment when you you just think, I've got to try to get something better than this because I can't go on doing this. And you don't regret that, do you? I don't. I can't regret it, no. No, not at all. Because if you, I mean... If I hadn't have done it, I would probably be, uh, who knows where I would have gone. I don't know whether I could have stood that life in that one room very much longer yeah. now. Uh, Kesby, we haven't even mentioned the title of the book. Thanks a lot, Mr. Kibble White. Anyway, uh, Roger's coffee has just arrived, so while Roger is having some of his cappuccino, uh, we can explain the title later, although you've explained it many times. But anyway, we can uh, we can mention that when we get to school. Uh, Matt? Yeah, I'd, I, I want to talk to you about um, something you've actually just mentioned now, which is about um, the difference between different um, music biographies, autobiographies that you've, that you've read. And I, I would argue that those kind of books fit into pretty much the same kind of genre as, as sports autobiographies, in that you'll have certain sport books which are analysing in great detail every goal that that particular player has scored, which is mind-numbingly dull. You have 
other biographies, which is I'm going to tell you the gossip inside the dressing room, which is diverting, but that's all it is. The better ones are the ones that bring you a degree of insight. And this is what I got from your your book, particularly about singing. And there's a word you describe, a word you use to describe your singing, which is primal. And even though you know I've listened to you sing, and and many of the people listening to the to this podcast will have heard you sing. Primal absolutely describes how they would dis- uh, how they would put Roger Daltrey singing, but it still jumped out at me because I-, I think the episode you talk about, which isn't what you were expecting, is you work with this is before the Who have taken off. This is you working in a I think it's sheet metal um, sheet metal work factory egg, yeah. exactly, and all the other guys would be singing. There'd be no radio on. Nobody was singing along to something. They were just singing, and that is primal. That was the joy of growing up in the period we grew up in, um, post-war London. Uh, singing was everywhere. Every building site you go by, all the builders would be singing. Every garage you go by, everyone would be singing. The milkman sang, the postman sang. Uh, everyone sang. The pubs at the weekend would be, there would always be a piano going or something and people would be singing. People, it got them through the war. One thing Hitler could never understand about the British, the more he bombed them, the louder they sang. <laughs> so it was, it, it, I don't know, and there's something wonderful about when people sing together. I love the noise of a football crowd when you're in, in the stadium and they start singing. It, that is pure, primal humanity. It's wonderful. And the science on it is that when people sing together, their heartbeats go to the same rhythm. And that's scientifically proven. I find that incredible. That is, it's, it's so socially cohesive. And we don't do enough of it this, these days. Where has it gone? Where has it gone? Wake up in the morning, open your gob and sing, for Christ's sake. <laughs> there's, there's also, there are great traditions in some pubs in the north of England where you go to the pub and sing carols. You can do it in church, but a lot of people just do it in the pub. Yeah. And someone comes around and they start singing and the whole pub is singing carols. And that sort of is, isn't happening anymore either. No, but it's I think that's a, tragic. That's, that's a great tradition, isn't it? You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Go oh, and get a pint of beer tragic. and sing Heart the Herald. <laughs> yeah. It's tragic that people don't sing anymore. How much singing went on act and grammar for you, Roger? Uh, not a lot. Not a lot. Not very much at all there. I mean, there you know, there was a little... You know, I'd, I'd made my first guitars, and I was really interested in in skiffle. And we would—I was kind of mimicking Lonnie Donegan, as were millions of other kids around the country. And I had this little skiffle group in Shepherd's Bush, and we re- used to rehearse at the Soulgrave Boys Club on on the Goldhawk Road. And, and uh, but the all the school, the grammar school music class wanted to teach me would. would Dots on pages, and I, oh, it didn't mean anything to me. I wanted, I wanted music to make a noise. I wanted note. I want, you know, I wanted to either play an instrument or I wanted to hear it. I don't want to read it. <laughs> Lonnie Donegan actually has come up um, before uh, a few episodes of this podcast ago. We had on one show. We had Mark Kermode, film critic, and Alan Johnson, former Labour uh, Home Secretary. 
And the one thing that they had, they were like music memoirs. And the one thing that they talked about, the one thing they had in common was Lonnie Donegan and the power of Lonnie Donegan. Can you just explain what it was about? Because you mentioned Elvis on the same page, but it's actually Lonnie Donegan that kind of brings it home to you. Can you explain Well, Elvis, Elvis was style and he, he was kind of almost like watching someone who come in from outer space. It was like, it was so, he was so different and he, uh, and, but Lonnie, when when we saw Lonnie on the TV, that again it was the way Lonnie sang. Elvis was kind of it, it, it was a veneer. It was on. It felt like you know what he was, the, the, where the voice was coming from. It was, it was all very good, but it was it was very considered and a, a veneer on, that he'd adopted like an act. But with Lonnie. Again, it was primal. He used to throw his head back and wail. And you go, whoa. <laughs> and it moved you in a different way. There was just something about him. And he was completely square. I mean, he used to come on in a dinner jacket and a bow tie, which was completely untrendy. You know, when Elvis was in his, you know, zoot suits and, you know, tight trousers, drain pipe trousers, well, what were considered drain pipe trousers, but they were kind of zoot Zoot suit trousers, which were baggy at the tops and tight at the bottom, um, but but Lonnie, it it was just the way he sang. It just moved you in a different way than Elvis because this came from the inside. This wasn't a veneer on the outside. I mean, did you have when you're putting the band together? I think it's the summer of '61. You talk about uh, connecting with John Entwistle, then you audition the kid with the impressive sneezer. <laughs> uh, uh, and then Keith, and then and then Keith Moon is. But what, did you have did you have Skiffling? Did you have Lonnie Donegan in common? Is that what you were trying to? I, no, they they um, both John and uh, uh, and Pete were in a jazz band. I mean, Pete was musically had a musical background from his father and his mother. His mother was a singer. His grandfather, they, you know, his whole family were musicians to way back the Townsends. Quite very interesting. Uh, you know history there, um, but uh, they they were in a trad band and Pete played banjo, John played trumpet, um, but then John was also interested in in a bass in the bass and uh, I just bumped into John on the street and he like me he'd made his own bass he, and it was an extraordinary looking instrument it really was nothing like any other bass guitar you'd ever seen it had the longest neck. <laughs> which, he, which he kept that kind of style of bass. He kept right until the end. You know, I've got one of his uh, uh, what was it called? I can't remember the name of it, but one of his basses. And then I can just about reach the end of the neck. It's so long, and he just he just used to love these long neck basses. And he he had huge fingers, John, beautiful hands. You and he was a magical bass player. And you you mentioned. Uh, I guess it's an audition uh, for Keith Moon, and I think you're playing Roadrunner uh, by Bo Diddley. And can you just explain what that moment was like when when Keith comes in and he and he's doing this audition and it kind of well, you know, takes off really? We we were kind of we were a Stones alike band at the time. We were doing blues, um, and we but we were three piece. Unlike the Stones, we didn't have a rhythm guitarist. We had just Pete doing kind of uh, Mick Green, Wilco Johnson type lead and solo at the same time so that and between John's very intricate bass playing John never ever played straight bass 
It was almost like John played bass like a lead guitarist. <laughs> Pete played rhythm like a drummer. <laughs> so it was kind of very weird syncopation always with the Who. And I was I was a singer and we, we had a session drummer playing. And Keith got up and said, I can play better than that guy, can I have a go? And the, the, the drummer let him use his kit and Keith got up and started playing. And we played Roadrunner, Bo Diddley's Roadrunner. And it, it just started off the usual down, 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 down. But then halfway through, Moon started going to double in the beat. <laughs> and it, for some reason or the other, it just, it was, it really, what I have to explain to you now, a lot of people don't really understand is that the singer in a, in a, in a three-piece band very rarely sees the band, but you feel them. So it's all about the feel that's coming from behind you for, a, for mm -hmm. the singer. And I immediately felt this, like someone had put the key in the ignition and this energy came, came through the music. And it just took off. It was extraordinary that Keith, what Keith added to it. And it just linked the whole algorithm of these, like I say, this lead guitar bass player, <laughs> this, this drumming <laughs> rhythm lead guitarist uh, and a drummer that played like no other drummer we'd ever heard. It was extraordinary. The the energy you've just spoken about, that's, that that leads me on to something I, I want to talk about. You talked about how you could feel that energy as as the singer, so you can feel it coming from behind you. I want to talk about the experience that the, that the crowd would have had because my instinct from reading your book is that going to see The Who at that time would be a bit like sailing a yacht right next to a waterfall. It's going to be exhilarating, it's going to be great fun, but at any any point, it could tip over and that <laughs> anything could happen. And so I, that, again, comes down to the sort of primal nature of the band at this time. That much energy, that much primal fear coming out of the band means that at any point, things could snap. Yeah, there, there, there was. We were very dangerous. I mean, we were dangerous. Uh, you know, we, we. I suppose, I suppose, all bands have it, but we we all had enormous, probably enormous egos. Um, we were also. Uh, I, I had to rule them with a kind of bit of an iron fist at the time because they were they were all getting. I, they were they were quietly becoming three addicts. <laughs> so it took a lot to keep them in shape uh, and you know I was the guy who, who drove the van got all the stuff together booked the, the you know made sure we got to gigs all that stuff responsible stuff so I kind of became dad you know, in a way to the, to the rest of them um, but there, it, it created a very dangerous friction around us. And I did used to rule it with an iron fist and I was kind of inarticulate, yobbed from the street uh, and I used to solve things with, with my fists, you know. But, and, but dealing with Pete, who was very, could be very articulately cutting, Keith could be the same. He had a, he had a vocabulary way beyond his education. I don't know where he got it from. Extraordinary. And he could be the same. Uh, John was just, John was just quiet, but he was quietly, you know, he had a kind of wicked side to him. He was kind of, he had this kind of, I don't know, 
John, John was an only child and his mum got divorced and, he, and married another guy. And, and I don't, John literally hated his stepdad. Uh, and I, that, I think that had an effect on John, which gave him this kind of spiteful side. <laughs> so you put all four of those. Yeah, together. so it, it, yeah, it, at any moment. But it was the band that everyone thought if they last to the end of the week, they'll be doing well. Wow. And, and after every record, you know. Well, this will probably be the last one, I and mean, then this will be the last one. But for some reason or the other, we hung together, you know, longer than most, just like the Stones. And is all of that the reason why you've described the Who as music to fight to? Well, yeah, I mean, but because you know, at one top, one point, some genius of a record company came came up with the idea of the greatest rock and roll band in the world, the Who. We never were a rock and roll band. Ever, we've never ever been a rock and roll band since the day Keith Moon joined us. The day Keith Moon joined us, rock and roll is you know, Chuck Berry, pub music, dance music, it was music to make love to. You know, this the in and out, in and out. It's just ever so simple. Who music is on the one? It's like. <laughs> it's fun, 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 you know, it's in your face. Uh, that's the only way I can describe it. And it, it, you can play the same rhythm, it's the same tempo, but it's where the where the slap is, isn't it? And instead of it, it becomes... You're testing the percussion yeah, qualities then, of our table you know, now. Then, then that goes... <laughs> I don't know how he did it. I mean, Moon's rhythms were, like, extraordinary. So he, you know, um, they got that completely wrong. We never, ever were a rock band, a rock and roll band. We were always a rock band. I think you got that message through. I, I think they, so. I think they I did. So. <laughs> so, so there's a, so there's a, so, so I'll build the table back. <laughs> there might be a couple of cracks in there somewhere. There, there, there's clearly um, a moment which changed you uh, as a singer and I, I guess sort of affected the fortunes of the band a lot and that's when Tommy... Uh, comes out, which is still still strikes me as the, the most amazing idea for a concept uh, it's album. Wonderful ever. When, when you were told the idea, do you remember what you? Well, it you, was the idea initially was so simple. That, that's what was always great about something that with all these complicated and, and, and intellectual thinking would always come up with one line. I would. Could fire me up, and the line that came out, he says, "Just imagine going through life, just experiencing life through vibration, uh, which is what music is." You know, and I just thought that was genius. So then they put it into this deaf, dumb, and blind boys, and it, and it slowly but surely this thing built up into becoming what it ended up being, but. I think Tommy's one of the best operas ever written. It's certainly got the most lyrics. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been going to quite a few grand operas recently and and uh, that's the one thing they're pretty sure of is the lyrics. <laughs> and most of them are in Italian or German yeah, or yeah, something like but, that. but equally they sing the same line. You can repeat, repeat, repeat. You go, oh, yeah, and what else? <laughs> but Tommy, I, I don't know, there's something magical about it. And, and I've always seen the, the, the Cousin Kevin and Uncle Ernie characters as being kind of one character. They're all sides of... We've all got the potential to be those 
that to, to be kind of that nasty side of the balance, you know, the balanced person. Um, and it's, it's, it's it, we we did it at the time all very tongue in cheek because there was always, you know, the, the, I, 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 I remember the, the holiday camp idea was which was Keith's and it was based on a very bad kind of you know. Um, Based on a bloody concentration camp, right? Basically, black, that very dark post-war humour. You know, we're going to go to this holiday camp. We're never going to come out. You know, horrible. It wasn't fun, you know. But that was that was our humour at the time. It was very dark humour. Can you explain? That's kind of embarrassing in a way now. And can you explain? Because you said that everything you learnt to do with your voice came from Tommy. Can you just how it affected you as a singer and why it was well? What was so. the, the period from from my generation through to Tommy uh, was very difficult because Pete threw some really weird songs at me. Because I was a blues singer, I could deal with my generation, I could deal with any way, how, anyhow, anywhere, could deal with Can't Explain. But then, it, then I got kind of, I'm a boy thrown at me, and I was like, whoa, what's this about? <laughs> and it was about... a. a, a a, a mother who wanted, uh, she was going to have quads and she wanted four, uh, four girls, but she'd had three girls and a boy. But she was treating the other, the boy as a girl. And, of course, the boy is going, but I'm a boy. <laughs> my my mum won't admit it. So all of a sudden I was presented with this song and I'm thinking, how am I going to sing this? Uh, and I struggled and I struggled and I struggled and I ended up with what the record is. And it's only now when I listen to it, I think I got it perfectly right because that voice has got a haunted quality in it and it is it is the boy struggling to be recognised as, as, as a boy, you know, amongst three, three, three girls in the family. It's kind of, it, it's a weird voice. It's not, not anything like my voice once I got to Tommy. Once I got to Tommy, I'm playing this character that goes all the way through it. And uh, there's so many emotions in there, it, it gave me scope to explore. The record is one thing. Once we got it on the stage, it became another completely different bag of you know, chips. I mean, it was like really weird. Uh, it, I just grew and grew and grew as a singer. And I also developed a stage persona that sued I, I, I kind of built a Tommy an image for the thing you know I want to talk to you Roger about the who on tour because um I know what it, me as a teenage boy and I, I'm gonna say I wouldn't have been alone in this but if you'd said to me pick out any career you want um and I would have said rock star in a rock band that's doing very well on tour in the United States and we're selling out everywhere. Reading your book, that is the lifestyle you're in and it sounds like a complete nightmare because you are being chucked out of hotels at <laughs> three in the morning, which, you know, because Keith Moon has set off cherry bombs in the toilet and that's amusing story to tell when you get home, but at three in the morning you're being chucked out of a hotel and it also gets old very quickly when that's the fourth night on the trot that you've been chucked out of the hotel. I think if, if this book does anything, it sort of strips away that glamour of a rock star lifestyle. At the t- and this is at the top of your game as well. 
Well, like I say, when people, you know, kind of wish for fame, there's a, it's an awful lot of hard work involved, uh, an awful lot of hard work. And, and I always say, be careful what you wish for, because unless you're prepared to put that work in, the fame on its own will just kill you. And uh, as it did, you know, quite a few people. Um, but living with Keith Moon, what, it was incredibly volatile. You just never knew from one day to the next whether you'd you know, find him alive in the morning. Towards the end, the last four years of his life, it was almost like, that's why he's, you know, it was almost like, you know, how are we going to get through this week? How are we going to get through the next week? And, you know, it literally on tenterhooks. But that made his death even more of a shock for some reason because after four years of expecting it, it was like shit. It's actually happened. It was was shocking. But you do, you do talk in the book about how you'd noticed that his his talents were diminishing because of that. The the well, he noticed. I mean, that was the uh, that was the, the really that was a really sad day um, because my relationship with Keith was 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 very very different than anybody else in the band because. At, at, in, at the beginning, I was Keith's enemy because I used to stand in front of him. And, and Keith always used to feel that the drummer should be on the front of the stage. He he based his style on, on, on Gene Krupa. And if you watch Gene Krupa, the way he drums with the drumsticks down, and Gene Krupa used to be at the front of the stage. Well, that's where Keith wanted to be, but of course, fuck you, you got to go back there, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, so I was the enemy. So for all that, for for the per- first sort of two, three years till sort of not till the summer of 1967, when we went on our first American tour, Keith and I used to be. There was quite a lot of friction between us. Um, but at the end of his life, I was the closest one to him, and that that was that made it that made his death really. I really. I took it very badly, very, very badly, because we were desperately trying to help him. And Heather and I were the last people. He'd kind of worn everybody else out because he used to ring up at four in the morning in a terrible state. He used to feel, he used to feel useless uh, when he was sober. He just, I'm nobody when I'm sober. Nobody likes me when I'm sober. And he just couldn't do it. And then he used to ring up and cry and then four o'clock in the morning. And Heather was really, my wife Heather was fantastic with him. She would always talk to him for half an hour at four in the morning, you know, and everybody else was putting the phone down. I would talk to him. But that, I took it very bad I, because I thought I could, I, I thought I could change him and I couldn't. We spoke to um, uh, Michael Parkinson. He was, he was in here talking about, talking about George Best, which is his uh, latest book. And he said it took a while for uh, him and people around George to realise that he didn't want to be helped, actually. Um, did Keith want to be helped? Or? Yeah, he did. He did. That was the tragedy of it. He, I mean, the, the drug that killed him was was the, an, a, an anti-alcoholic drug, you know, it was to stop the drinking. But, uh, I've, uh, you know, I'm going to make a film of, of Keith next year. I'm working on it now. I've been trying for 30 years, but I can't get the right script. But I've got a writer now that I think has the potential to come up with it, Jeff Pope. Um, look him up. 
uh, and we're, we'll see because I, 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 I have got a, an idea of a film about Keith that will... But it has to be a film. It can't be a biopic, if that makes sense yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't like biopics. The only good biopic I've seen, I think, was possibly the Beach Boy one a while ago with two Brian Wilsons. So you were, So this is going to be a a, a proper a cinematic a, a film experience. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly an operatic life. Well, you know, he was such an extraordinary character, and, and I, like I say, this there was a journey, uh, and and if 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 I capture that journey, and and what Keith was going through at the time, it would be a very interesting film. Um, but like I say, I, he. he his drumming did deteriorate quite badly at the end, and and unfortunately for Keith, that he saw it in glorious Technicolor in the Kids Are All Right because, you know, the last bits of film we shot for that uh, of the of the uh, I won't get fooled again. I think it was or Barbara Riley. I can't remember what song it was. Uh, he knows that he was being held on the drum kit by a roadie at the back of him, just keep him sitting upright because he was so out of it. Mm. And the drumming was very sloppy. And he, you know, for him, watching that film, The Kids Are All Right, must have been like falling off a cliff and watching his whole life go before him. And he's gone from this beautiful, young, uh, adorable kind of Davy Jones kind of drummer. He looked, he looked you know, he was the girl's favourite in the band, uh, to be in this bloated, overweight, podgy, useless drummer being held on a drum kit by a roadie. It must have been incredibly painful. He came out from the first screening of that. He was there with his girlfriend, I was there with Heather, and he was crying. And that's when he, we, we, I got, we were going to build a gym, we were going to get fit, fit, we'd get him fit, and I promised him if he got fit, I'd get, Pete back on the road touring. Uh, he did try. <laughs> he signed up for a riding lessons at Rotten Row. <laughs> that was his idea of getting fit. Going for a riding lessons. <laughs> oh, but it, oh, you just had to love him. You just had to love him. He was a character and a half. Talking to Roger Daltrey's book is Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, and we'll do more with Roger in just a second. Roger Daltrey is our guest uh, on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Mr. Kibble. What is the book? And I was very, one of the reasons we're excited to have you here, Roger, is um, I had one of those par- parenting moments with, with my eldest. This is a few years back, and he had a, a, a stressful exam or test at school. So I'm driving into school, and we've got The Who on, uh, on, a, on a CD, and Won't Get Fooled Again comes out. And I turn it, and I'm, I'm explaining the relevance of this song and how it has the greatest scream in the history of yes. rock at the end, uh, and to listen out for it. And, you know, there's this whole sense of ex- expectations. It's the full version of the track, right? And also it has the greatest final line in any rock song ever, which I still think it's just an amazing, it's an amazing payoff. Anyway, so he's listened to this. He's thinking, this is great. You know, now I've, it's, I've done my job. I've taken his mind off the test. And later that evening, he comes in and he's, his eyes are uh, glowing and he's so excited. I said, oh, you know, how did it go? And... How did, you know, what did you think about the Who and all that kind of stuff? And 
He was he, he wasn't excited and thrilled because of the story that I told in the track that he listened to, but he just watched The Simpsons and he said, Dad, the Who were playing Springfield. <laughs> And and the who play spring and you play won't get fooled again. And what I'd said was fine, you know, <laughs> vaguely interesting. But the fact that yeah, you, that's, that that's, you played the Simpsons. That's when you know. That's, that's when you know you've made it when you've been on the Simpsons. Oh, that was wonderful to do that show. That was like cross generational. Like that was amazing. That was that was really terrific. Um, can I ask? Can I ask you about Woodstock because? Uh, uh, people, I mean, certainly I don't remember uh, Woodstock, but you hear the legend and you hear the story. And what you don't hear is The Who turning up in a VW. What, well, it I, wasn't The Who, it was me, the singer of The Who. Okay. I don't well, know, the, the, the others though. got there in the Hurt station wagon. Yeah, but, but you, I mean, you were supposed but, to arrive in a helicopter like everyone well, else. Well, you know, it just show, shows you, you know, even then there was there was such a thing as fake news. <laughs> because, you know, we, we I was in, in Connecticut with, with my in-laws, um, two days before, the thing started on on the Friday. We were due to play the Saturday, and it was due to finish on the on the Sunday. But uh, on the Thursday night, uh, Woodstock was headline news on every TV station right across the country. About this, half a million people had turned up. All these hippies who were who were running around naked and doing, and 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 there was an enormous rain. Uh, uh, storms and thunderstorms and good, you know, terrible weather. So the whole place was a quagmire of mud and crap and everything. The fences had been torn down. It was completely out of control. The governor of New York had declared a state of emergency. All the roads were closed. This was what's coming across the news. Um, and so you're sitting there. I was sitting there in Connecticut watching this on a Thursday night. On the Friday, on the Friday, it's still the same news. Woodstock, and there's more film of all this chaos, and someone's died, and people were being born. <laughs> it's like madness. And, and there's the only way you can get in is by helicopter, and all this. And I'm thinking, well, how are we going to get there? And uh, my father-in-law says, "Well, we, 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 we drive there." Well, and he, all, all they had, all we had, was a little Volkswagen, a little red red Beetle. <laughs> so Heather and I got in the back, and I had the, the mother and father in law in the front, and we drove to Woodstock. And and we every time we came to a, a, a roadblock where the traffic was all backed up, he just drove up the inside, up the inside lane, up up the the the, uh, the emergency lane. And and every time we got to a block, he just drove up the bank. <laughs> we went round it, and people waved us through. And Herbie went to Woodstock. And it, <laughs> it was a so all this stuff about, and there were no helicopters. We I never went in a helicopter at Woodstock. We drove to Woodstock for the show in in the Hurt station wagon. Uh, it was most of that was I don't know. Like I say, it was fake news then. If it feels like a legend, it feels. I mean, you almost don't but, go on but stage. The one thing I've, I've always um, felt about Woodstock is that everybody talks about the bands and they talk about, them, but the stars of Woodstock were the crowd. They were incredible. I mean, and and, and you have to when you look back through history, you've got to say that Woodstock was the event that changed the course of the Vietnam War. It was, it, that was the, the, the one event that made the government sit up and take notice and think, we've got to do something about this and start, you know, the, the trend to get out of Vietnam. 
America to get out because these these youngsters were being drafted. I mean, us here in Britain, we've got no idea what young America went through at that time. It was horrible. It was. It, that is where the, the legend came from. I do want to just ask you finally about um, something you say, which I, I started by asking you about sport uh, sport books, and this is something that that um, tallied with that as well. And that is the idea of flow. When sports stars talk about flow, it's when they're competing and they feel like they're floating above themselves, watching themselves play. And the best the best example of that is all Ernst Senna driving around um, Monaco Grand Prix, where it just he feels like he is floating above the car, watching himself perform because he is so in the moment. And you talk about that being on stage where you feel like this isn't this isn't me, I'm watching someone else and that is when I'm nailing it the most, when I'm in that state of flow, of, of how do you attain that, that, that sort of, uh, that mindset? It just, it, uh, I can't explain it to you. It's so, it is such a weird feeling. You just, if you try, it, it, you fail. You you've got to give. You've just got to let go, and you you just got to trust. You've got to, you've got to listen. You've got to feel, and when it when it happens, it's just magical. I'm never more I'm never more of a Roger Daltrey than I am when I'm in that moment. I'm complete. I feel like at last my life makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> you describe it like a state of grace, almost. The way it is. It's his most amazing feeling. It's 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 you know that you can watch you can watch football teams when once they start to try and score, I can miss after miss after miss after miss after miss like watching the Arsenal. Yeah, <laughs> thank heavens. <laughs> <laughs> but well, not not so much now though. We're getting better. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it it's like that. It's quite common that you once you stop trying and just. Let yourself flow with it. Let yourself feel it, feel it, feel it, feel it. Don't stop the worry. The worry just produces nothing. Final question, Roger. Obviously, meeting John and Keith and Pete and forming the band, incredibly important as part of this story. But I wonder if meeting Heather, uh, your wife of, is it 50 years? 51. We've been we lived together for 51 years. 51 years. Uh, we've been married for just 49 years next year. Would you say that's almost your greatest achievement? Uh, well, meeting her was the best bit of luck I ever had. She was my sole partner, true partner, understood me, understood our business more than anything, understood our business. And that's why my marriage has survived, because I, I was able to be honest with her about what our business was like and what the pitfalls were of it and and the fact that there's no way I would have got through it and and I didn't want to come back and off of, off of a three months tour of America as a young man you got to remember I'm very young 20, 20, 20 uh, six years old 27 years old and you know say from the biggest rock band in the world and say yes darling I've been a really good boy I've been lying through my back teeth you know just, just I'm a human being, and I didn't want to ever have to, ever had to do that. So I said, "Look, I can't promise I'm going to be one of those guys who's going to, you know, be in a normal kind of marriage with you." But she wanted to have children, so did I. And I, I, God, I adore her. I adore her, and we're true partners. That's the secret. We're true partners. 
Uh, Roger, it's a privilege to have you on the show and we appreciate you coming in. Um, and we never even got to explain the title <laughs> because this <laughs> right. is the only interview that is It doesn't matter isn't... about the title. It doesn't matter no, about no, the title. No. You'll have did, to buy the I book. Mean, I fought and fought for this title because everyone wanted to call it, you know, my generation or the Daughtry. They wanted to have a big picture of my face on the front. And I looked at the biographies on the shelf and I thought, well, they've all got a face on the front with a name. What's the point, you know? And I thought, no, I want to call my book something else. And I and my headmaster at the grammar school, after giving me six of the best on my bare ass, which I tell you, you never forget. No. <laughs> Makes your eyes water. Um as, as he was expelling me on my, I, and I can't remember whether it was the last day of my 14th year or my 15th birthday, it was one of the two. As I was going out of his office, you know, kind of gritted teeth, he, he said in my ear, you'll never make anything of your life, Daughtry. And I went, oh. <laughs> thanks a lot, Mr. Kilroy. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> so thanks indeed to Mr. But, but now, but the, in the fullness of time, there is a true thank you to Mr. Kilroy because I have to say he was a teacher. He was a good teacher doing his job. I was a disruptive pupil. If he hadn't have said that to me, who knows where my life would have gone? It, you know, the fact that he said it, I thought, well, I'll show you. <laughs> And you have done. Uh, before you go, Roger, just should mention the Teenage Cancer Trust uh, concert at the Royal Albert Hall, which you've uh, made such an important part of your life, are back again, um, March the 25th, rudimental, and then it's Take That and Doves and Levelers and the Script. So this is an imp- And this is always an imp- important part of your life. That's a huge part of my life. Uh, that's the other job. <laughs> that really is. Because it's not only teen- the Teenage Cancer Trust. I've started Teen Cancer America. Um, because I this is this idea this what what the teenage cancer trust do over here in our national health system. It's very difficult to explain to the public when they go into our teenage cancer trust wards. We are in the NHS, but we are not part of it. That ward is built by the charity, all charitable money. We do get some help with the nursing staff that we put in there, specialist nursing staff for these for these teenagers. But the 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 cost of building these wards and giving adolescents and young adults an environment where they can be amongst their peers against the old system of where they used to be amongst screaming kids with nurseries and rainbows and clowns. I can tell you some horror stories. Uh is is proving to be so beneficial to the success of the medicine. It's unbelievable. And I've now started it in America. We've been going six years. We've got 21 hospitals, some of the biggest cancer hospitals in the world, uh, already covered, 21. At the end of next year, we should have probably more in America than we have here. Programs, it's a different system over there. We have programs for adolescents and young adults. Australia have accepted it. We lead the world in in the care of adolescents and young adults. It's time we woke up. They are not children. They are not adults. They sit in the middle. They need to be amongst their own. To isolate them socially and psychologically when they're in hospital with any hospitalised disease, it is criminal to do it. 
we are at the point in history now where we need to take this on board and have whole sections of hospitals devoted to that age group because the damage that's being done by isolating them when they're hospitalised is appalling. It really is. Uh, well, Roger, we appreciate that and we appreciate uh, you coming in and uh, thank you very much indeed for spending some time with Pleasure, us. Pleasure, mate. So as Roger was coming in and getting yes. his camera, obviously everything stops for Mr. Daltrey. Uh-huh. Thanks a lot, Mr. Daltrey. <laughs> I was just, I had just started reading an email from Griffin Hansen, and I don't want to annoy Griffin. Well, no, I mean, Griffin took the time to email in, so really. So, you so know. Griffin, this is, this is the completion of, the, uh, uh, of, of your email. Uh, Simon and Matt, about Joe's lovely email, this is on our last. Oh, we've got Roger coming back in again. There we go. There you go. There you go. Goodness me, that was close. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone through it. We've gone through it. <laughs> don't look us in, Roger. Lovely. I, I don't know. You recorded one interview with Roger Dolce, then you can't get rid of him. <laughs> no. Let's just pack him. Have a word with security. Chuck oh, him out. Dear, oh dear. Anyway, Griffin, Griffin Hansen's not yeah, going to get his email Griffin. read out. Um, Joe's lovely email about crying through that scene on the beach in Deathly Hallows. I can report I had exactly the same experience with my mum. She read me all the Potter books as they came out, starting when I was three. The spiders in book in book two were traumatic, but I wouldn't let her quit. By the time Deathly Hallows came out, I was ten and well able to read them by myself. Still, we kept the tradition, and she read the seventh book aloud in a three-day Eight hours of reading a day marathon. When we got to that scene, she started crying so hard, I yelled at her and snatched the book away to keep going myself. To this day, despite many, many listens to the audiobooks, this remains the only part of the quasi-sacred text that I've read to myself, and all because my mum couldn't get the words out clearly enough. Glad to know I wasn't the only kid impatient with adult blubbering. From Griffin, who and Griffin signs it, female and a Ravenclaw. Go figure. Yeah, I, I I can understand that actually. The idea that your parent is is crying so much, and you're like, why are you crying? Tell me the story. The purpose of you being here is to tell me the story. I don't need you to react to the story. I just want to hear. The, that's why we're doing this. You're reading it to me, so I'm. Yeah, thanks, very, Mum. Very much in Griffin's corner. Uh, Paul Eldham says thanks to Books of the Year for introducing me to the Economist, uh, which thankfully is available to download from HLH Social Library Service as I really can't afford the Dead Tree version. Well, the good news is that if you follow the code that we've given you, you get a free copy, free print copy of The Economist. Is that is that obviously still, still going? Active? They're still there with us? Excellent. Good to know. Check previous shows for details. Obs. Uh, and Rupert Denham Hall, can anyone recommend any awesome non-fiction books? I'm currently in the final stages of reading The World As It Is uh, by Ben Rhodes, and he was a previous uh, mm. guy on the show. So, uh, non-fiction book, I will go with Sapiens, I would think. By oh, that is such a good book. No, yeah. Yuval Harari. Yeah, so I would yeah. go with that, and other people will get in touch. Can we encourage you, please, to get in touch? It would be very nice to hear from you. Uh, anything you want to tell us, uh, that's booksoftheyear at yahoo.com, and you can tweet us at Books of the Year. Yes. And thanks for all the limericks which are coming in, and they will be discussed, and we will hand out our gift voucher. Yes, my mum is very happy that she's apparently been trending on Twitter, which is... Uh which is going to make Christmas that little bit easier. Yes. I hope. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll give away our WH Smith voucher yes. uh, on next week's programme. And when I do I say hope... next week's programme, what I mean is whenever it comes whenever out. Whenever this comes out. I do hope as well that people have been using the Mayo button in the WH Smiths on Mayo. their tails. Mayo! Where's my extra 10% off Michael Parkinson's book? 
Excellent. Yes. I think that's a very good thing. I must go and do that now before yes. I forget. And then people will just think the guy's lunatic. He's shout, <laughs> shouting, shouting his, his own name. name. <laughs> uh, thank you very much indeed uh, for downloading us. Tell all your friends, subscribe wherever you can subscribe for your podcast. <laughs> that was smooth. I think so. Well I'm done. quite a fay with the whole thing. Right. <laughs> Robin Ince is going to be uh, our next guest because he he's desperate and he wants to. <laughs> no, no, he's written he a very wants... good book. That's why he's. Oh, on. that's why. That's yeah. that, that's absolutely why. <laughs> and he was on the Daily Politics, the Daily Politics, or whatever it is. That Andrew Neil. Oh yes, thing that he does with Michael Portillo. Okay, that one. That one. He and was he, on that. One, he, he was on that. So good. He is a little bit desperate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh hi, Robin. <laughs> Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.